Uh, one of the guys who writes on one of my favorite websites, the Gospel Coalition, I don't know if you've been on that one before, his name, he's a Jewish man, his name is Bernard Howard, he grew up in a, a Jewish home in liberal Judaism, which is probably the most relaxed form of the three branches of Judaism today. He, that's the form where you, know, you go to synagogue a couple times a year, and they don't follow dietary restrictions. They don't care about keeping kosher. He said, in my home, we ate bacon all the time. Uh, he never wore a skull cap as a, as a Jewish boy. But he said, I knew that I wanted to be Jewish. I knew that I wanted to align myself with my Jewish heritage. I wanted to honor my Jewish ancestors. He said that his great-grandmother survived Auschwitz and his great-aunt uh, did not. But he said, I knew I wanted to be Jewish. And so at the age of 13, he was, he went, was bar mitzvahed. A good Jewish boy. A few years later, he's a teenager lying in bed, and he's reading the Bible. He comes to Isaiah chapter 53, and he doesn't realize that this is one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. He's reading along, and all of a sudden, it's like an electric shock hits me. He sits right up in bed, and he says, I've made the most amazing discovery. This entire chapter is about Jesus wow, <laughs> what am I going to do about this now? <laughs> he said, my parents are not going to be happy. <laughs> I love the teenage naivete and exuberance. You know, I made a discovery that nobody else in the history of the world has ever seen. Well, not quite. The traditional interpretation of Isaiah 53 for about seven centuries was that This is a a messianic prophecy. This is pointing to the coming Messiah. That's what the Jewish rabbis taught for like 700 years up until Jesus is born. Jesus so dramatically fulfills in specificity the elements of this passage that at that point, shortly after Jesus dies, the rabbis, they fudge a little bit. They backtrack. They, they, They... no, this really isn't talking about the Messiah. This is, and they said, this is talking about Israel and her suffering or some small group in Israel and, and her suffering. You read that and you, you follow the history of interpretation. And you're like, come on, guys. This is Cinderella's glass slipper. We're all familiar with that. Like, it only fits one person in the entire world. This is the glass slipper. This, this was written 700 years before he, he was born. Like, if this slipper fits, then this is the most important thing in the world. Certainly the most important thing that you could ever hear about today. This is the glass slipper. There's, that is the inescapable conclusion of a fair-minded reading of Isaiah 52 and 53. So that's what we're going to do. I want to go kind of slowly as we start in 52.13. And I want you to read along with me. Behold, Isaiah says, behold, my servant will act wisely. This is the, the mysterious figure at the end of the book of Isaiah. Or, yeah, Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. We've been looking at him over the last several weeks. Behold, behold my servant will act wisely. 
He will be raised up. He will be lifted up and highly exalted. If you've been following the story, you know that that's exactly what this servant deserves. Raised up, highly exalted. But, verse 14, but many were amazed when they saw him. For his face was so disfigured, he hardly, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know that he was a man. Like the, the servant, people are horrified at the sight of this guy. Very strange. He's lifted up, but, but before he's lifted up, he's a, he's a freak show, literally. He's a boxer after a 12-round bout where his eyes are so swollen, he's got gashes on his cheek that his his own mother can't recognize him. That's what it says. Because of this, verse 15, he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless because of him, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about it. I mean, presumably... People are just simply shocked that either they're shocked that he is so disfigured, or another way of seeing it is they might be shocked that this disfigured man ends up being so highly exalted. That could be it. Verse chapter fifty-three, verse one. Isaiah speaks, "Who has believed our message, and to whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm?" In other words, who would have imagined that God's powerful arm, um, who would have imagined that God's saving might would be displayed in this way? In what way? Verse 2. The servant grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot, like a root, or maybe just, I don't know, some little green stalk, like, like a root out of dry ground, this is a reference to Jesus' birth. The fact that Jesus didn't, he wasn't born in what, a king's palace, a little town of Bethlehem and all of that. He, he had no auspicious beginning other than, you know, a few shepherds knew about. And, and Jesus was, I mean, it's a significant issue for us today. He was a refugee within two years of his birth. He was a refugee down into Egypt. He, he grows up in, in the desert, so to speak. In a family of no prestige. Verse 2 continues. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Uh, There's nothing that stood out about Jesus in a crowd. We talked about this last week. That um, forensic anthropology has... they've, They've done analysis of the bones of dead Jewish men in the first century. The average height and weight of a man in the first century was five foot one, 110 pounds, with probably a gray scraggly beard, or a dark scraggly beard. And that's what Jesus Christ looked like. I mean, that's, there, was, there was no aura emanating from him. There was no Renaissance Rembrandt halo above his head. There was none of that. He looked like, you know, just guy in the crowd. Verse 3. But he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. A man of sor- somebody pointed out to me this week. I think it was a really good point that um, 
We usually associate Jesus as the man of sorrows on the cross, and we sing about it. We're going to sing the last few verses of the good hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Uh, but in, really, Jesus' whole life was, was a, a life of sorrows in a very unique and interesting way. If Jesus Christ was really the holy God of heaven and earth incarnate in human flesh, then you would imagine being in a world that is so demolished by sin, like that would weigh on him in a way that it doesn't weigh on us. I mean, if you were pure and spotless holiness in a place like this, that's got to weigh. Um, that's got to grieve you, doesn't it? In, 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 a, in a fashion that we just can't imagine. He was a man of sorrows. Verse 3 and like one, or uh, the second half of it, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, we esteemed him not. That's a nice way of saying we thought he was scum. We thought he was a loser. We thought he was a, a criminal. Verse 4, surely, surely he took up our inform- infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. I want, so there's an interesting interplay. I should have probably told you this after verse 3. There's an interplay here between the he and the we. We get the he part, he. Who is the we? If you read this passage closely, it is almost as if Isaiah says, we, he describes it as though we are all kind of like standing at the feet of the cross when Jesus Christ is is then being crucified. We are there. We, Isaiah, Isaiah's contemporaries, the, the exiles that Isaiah writes to, Israel, the Romans, the Americans, the Boiseans, we are all there, kind of complicit in what happens to the, to the servant. We see him hanging there on the cross, this disfigured, suffocating man who's, who's uh, bleeding profusely, and we assume that he is suffering for his own sins. We assume that, like, this is karma. This is what, this is what happens when you live a really bad life. Like, you end up... That's what happens to you. We assume that he's the worst of sinners suffering for his own sins. And then Isaiah just like pulls the rug out from us. And he says, actually, he's suffering for not his sins, but but ours. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. So th- this is, and it's all throughout the whole passage, the doctrine of substitution. Jesus is a substitute. Jesus, you know, he lives the life we should have lived and haven't. He dies the death that we deserve to die, but, but don't. Uh, Jesus is the substitute. He 
not just physically does he suffer in our place, but spiritually he suffers under the, the judgment and wrath of God so that we would not. Verse 6, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own you know, sh- stubborn sheep way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's, you, you may remember that in the Jewish sacrificial system, uh, Jews were, were, were commanded to lay their hand on the head of the animal as a, like a symbolic demonstration to say, this animal is bearing my sins and dying in my place. You remember that? Well, here it says that the, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who We talked about this last week. Like Nobody stood up for him. There was not a single lawyer or advocate at any one of his trials standing up and speaking on his behalf. He was silent through all of those and even as he's being tortured by the Roman soldiers, he's, he's silent and nobody stands up and speaks on his behalf. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his, in his mouth. This is interesting. Reason being, uh, when a criminal was crucified, you know what they normally did is they just left the body hanging up on the cross. And the birds would, the carrion of the air would you know, fly down and pick at the corpse. They would let the corpse rot there for, I don't know, a week, two weeks, an extended period of time. And then they would take the body and they would just throw it in a pit. The crucified people never got a proper burial. That didn't happen. But Jesus Christ, because he was crucified on right before the Sabbath day, which never happened, remember, because you never even got a capital punishment. Just listen to last week's sermon. But it wouldn't have happened that way. They take him down up because of the Sabbath, and he is buried where? In the tomb of a rich man. In a very wealthy man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. The reason this, there were thousands of people crucified by the Romans in the first century. There was probably only one guy who ever got crucified and also buried in a rich man's tomb. You see, what, are the, what is the statistical probability that 700 years before this happens, you just guess it? <laughs> Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will have many descendants. Who are his descendants? Who are the many? (laughs) Yeah, it's us. All the Christians, we are his descendants. And his death is not the end of the story. Verse 10, the Lord will prolong his days, and the Lord, 
the, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. For after he has suffered, verse 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life, resurrection, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and I will divide the spoils with the strong. Um, it's like he's a victorious general who is at the head of his armies, given all authority and power in heaven and on earth. There at the head of the angel armies of heaven. And in his victory, he gets to you know, disperse all of the spoil of his victory to what people like us and angels alike. Because, finally, verse 12, um, because he poured out his life unto death, because he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let's, let's pray. I know that was a long reading. Let's quickly pray. Ah, our Father in heaven, you who are the author of scripture, we marvel that 700 years before Jesus was born, these words could, could be, were you know, written. Um, and these are words which are, for many of us, like our favorite passage in all of the Bible. Certainly our favorite passage in all of the Old Testament. We, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, just want to say thank you, Lord, for recording this. Thank you for putting your fingerprints you know, all over this book. Um, thank you for the Lamb of God. And for those of us here who already believe in him, would you, by virtue of this passage, strengthen our faith? And for those of us here who have not yet believed, we pray that you would create faith inside of them today. And all of God's people said, Amen. All right, we, that's, that was long, but I mean, how, it's the greatest passage in all the Old Testament. It, it's worthy of a slow reading, right? Well, here's where I want to go. I want to talk about how the cross works. Then I, I want to talk about why the cross is loving, and then there'll, there'll be a few quick takeaways at the end of the sermon. But before we even get to how the cross works... Uh, maybe we should talk about like why the cross is necessary. Billy Graham, good old Billy Graham, he once said that the problem is getting people, I'm sorry, the problem is not getting people saved, it's getting people lost. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What he meant was that most of us, most of us think that being forgiven by God is really not that big of a deal. Like, that's, isn't that, God's just supposed to forgive. Isn't that his job? <laughs> isn't that on your, on your job description? Like, if I, if I ask for forgiveness, aren't you obligated? We, he's kind of nice that way, isn't he? Most of us just think it's not that big of a deal. And then, truth be told, most of us, we don't feel like we have anything really big to be forgiven of. I mean, most of us say things like, well, I'm only human, I've made mistakes, yeah. I have some things in my past that I'm not proud of, but for the most part, the things that I've done wrong are generally excusable. Like, God shouldn't take, 
take it all that seriously. Uh, forgiveness is just, it's not a big issue. It's really not a big issue until you end up doing something really bad, where you, you really feel guilty and you really have a strong sense of shame. And then, you know, then you might pray a little bit more. You might, and that might actually get you to come to church more regularly. But for, even when you feel a lot of shame, I mean, that's a temporary experience. It wears off with time. It quickly passes away from our consciousness. We, I, I could just say this, ask all of you. Is, does anybody here really stress out about getting forgiven by God? Does that trouble you? What I hope that this long reading from Isaiah chapter 53 has helped you see is that in God's eyes, forgiveness is a humongous deal. Like all forgiveness is an enormous, enormous deal. And the reason is because God is not, he's not properly speaking like us. Um, For us, forgiveness is kind of easy. But for God, it's not because God is not like us. God is the king and judge of the world. And part of the job description of being king and judge of the world is that you relentlessly do justice. You make sure that all wrongdoing, all transgressions of the moral order of the universe that you've created, all of that is condemned and punished. Like that's part of what it means to be the world's king and judge. He he can't just be like, chill, I'm chilled out, dude. You know, it's not a big deal. Um, he can't he can't do that because the righteousness of his character will will not allow him to. Not take it all so seriously. Now, no sooner do I make that point than I know that for some of you, that, the way I just described it, it sounds so medieval, right? It sounds so old school. So, like, is God really, is he really like that? It sounds so foreign because the modern view of God is, I mean, God's basically a big therapist up in the sky, <laughs> God is, if, and people never put it this way, but if you listen to them describe what God is like, it's, the assumption is that God thinks mostly the way that I think and does things mostly the way that, that I would do. God is kind of like this big inflatable version of me. Up, God is like the Macy's Day Parade balloon, you know, of me way up there in the sky. Or, and, and if he's not, basically, if he's not that way, then I don't want anything to do with him. Like, if God is not just this big therapist, I, I don't want anything to do with him. According to the Bible, though, he is holy, righteous, and just. And that is why he cannot treat sin as if, hey, he can't shrug it off and treat it as though it, nothing has happened. And we don't want a God that would do that. Honestly, we do not want a God who would look at all the sin in the world and just shrug his shoulders and let it all go because that person is not worthy of worship. That person is kind of like us, but we're not worthy of worship. Isaiah 53, let's come back to it. Isaiah 53 is the most important place in the Bible that you go to learn about, all right, big word here, the doctrine of Penal Substitutionary Atonement. PSA. PSA is not public service announcement. PSA 
penal substitutionary atonement. That the idea that part of what Jesus did on the cross was to suffer the judgment of God for sins in our place, and in that way, he saved us from having to bear the penalty of our sins ourselves. Penal substitutionary atonement. Um, Isaiah 53 tells us the good news that, yes, God is a God of forgiveness. Yes, God forgives. But Isaiah 53 and PSA is basically an, expl- it's an explanation of how he can forgive us justly. How can he do a just forgiveness? How can he forgive in a way that is consistent with his holy and righteous character? How can the cross be um, lovingly just and justly loving? I don't know, this is probably not a topic that you've given a lot of thought to. I mean, I, most of us are not very philosophical. We do not sit around thinking theologically about like, the mechanism of the cross. How does the cross do what the Bible says that it does? Um, but if you think about it for just a moment, you will realize that it is very strange, and it is not the way that we typically think of justice. How is it that one man can uh, die for the crimes of other people? That's not the way that we normally, we don't normally think that like moral guilt can be transferred onto another person. So, I mean, go back to Paris. They they captured how many of the terrorists If all of a sudden on Monday, Brad Cheney decides to jump on an airplane, fly to Paris, land there, and and out of the goodness of my heart, I stand up and I say, you know, I will pay the penalty for those men. Is that just? Is that going to work? No, it's not. It's not going to satisfy anybody. Because normally we don't think about moral guilt being transferred onto another person. How can Jesus die in our place? That If you think about it a little deeply, you realize that that sounds like a miscarriage of justice, not the execution of justice. If you're still with me, okay. Uh, I'll give you my... Here are the reasons why I, I think the, it works. Well, we've said this before many times, that his name is not Jesus... First name Jesus, last name Christ. He didn't go by the title of Mr. Christ. Mr. Christ, come here please. No. We know that Christ is a title of which meant the anointed king. He's the anointed king. And in the biblical way of thinking, the king of a nation stands as the special representative of the people of that nation. Like a short way of expressing it, a shorthand way of expressing it is what is true of the king is true of the people. So if like a king wins a great battle, the people win the, the battle with them. If the king suffers a crushing defeat, vice versa, it's true of the people. The king, in, in the biblical sense, assumes a responsibility, a role for everybody that nobody else in the nation is able to fulfill. And I, I think that the, the same is true of Jesus. Like Jesus, as the Christ, as the anointed king, he fills a unique moral space in the universe where he functions as the representative of his people. Like, so probably in all other instances, Paris analogies 
and the like, it would not work for us to transfer the moral guilt off of them onto, onto me. But Jesus is not an ordinary man, and this is not an ordinary instance. Just like you think of who else was not an ordinary man who represented a great deal of people in the Bible. Adam. Adam, he wasn't ordinary. He, he was the representative of all humanity. And we talk about, when we talk about Jesus the Christ, we're saying that he is the second Adam. He is the new king. He occupies a unique moral space through which God is forging a new relationship between himself and humanity. I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? Let's go back to the Paris analogy for just a minute. Um, Like Paris doesn't feel fair. So we end up capturing, let's say we capture three, three terrorists, two terrorists. These guys end up killing 150 people. And justice requires that those three terrorists lose their life. I don't know if France, France probably doesn't have capital punishment and the death penalty. Let's just assume for illustration purposes that they do. We've, don't you feel the inherent sort of injustice in that? As though like the forfeiture of three lives could, could anyway be the, the just equivalent of the murder of 150 for true justice to take place, there, there, needs, there almost needs to be an equivalent uh, payment of, a payment of equivalent value for justice to be done. Um, you can think of it this way, like the United States national debt is it's along the lines of $18 trillion. I mean, if you st- start to try to pay that off at $100 a month, <laughs> Like, how do you deal with something that large? How do you deal with something that large? How do you deal with the debt of all of humanity? Whatever that is, it's got to be huge. What could possibly be a just equivalent of value to be paid for the debt of all humanity? It's like a God-sized debt is owed. Oh, a God-sized remedy is is provided. Nothing short of the sacrifice of the Son of God would be of equivalent value. That's precisely, at least in, in my thinking, what is it's part of what's taking place on the cross. Um, nothing but the death of the Son of God would be enough. Uh, I don't know. I'm... <laughs> My answers may be off here because when we talk about the mechanics of like how does the cross work, we are really getting into some of the most mysterious aspects of all of Christianity. Um, Let's move on to the second one. I know I I need to do it quickly. Uh, In this one, I feel much more confident about um, my answers. Why Why is the cross loving? Some of you grew up in a church environment where the cross wasn't really presented as loving. Yeah, some of you have grew up in an environment where the cross was presented as um, bipolar. The cross was the bipolarity of God. Like on one hand, we've got God, the, the Father in heaven, who is vengeful and wrathful and requires 
blood for his payment. On the other hand, we have Jesus, who's, who's loving and sacrificial, and he does this on, on our behalf. And on one hand, we have holiness. On the other hand, we have love. And it's, and it's like holiness, love, holiness, love. And it, no, that's not exact. No, it's all love. Every bit of it is, is love. I don't want any of us to walk away with this, this mischaracterization. No, the Father sends the Son in love. And the Son voluntarily goes out of love. He performs His work of salvation through the power of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of love. He, there's, like no, there's no pitting members of the Trinity against each other as they're like, the Father's angry and the Son is kind and loving. No, this, this whole thing is maybe one of the reasons we get this mischaracterization. If you look with me at, at verse 10, in my translation that I included in the thing, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Well, the old King James Version translates verse 10 differently. It says it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him, or it pleased the Lord to crush him, as though like God was so happy that he got to pulverize Jesus on Good Friday. Oh, I'm, like, oh, I'm glad I get to. No, that is um, it's a gross misunderstanding. I, the Father never hates the Son, even on the cross. The Father never hates the Son. He he always looks upon the Son. In love. Yes, yes, the son is going to bear the penal consequences of sin in the place of sinners and receive the judgment, the right judgment that is due from God. But it's not like there's a split personality where all of a sudden for some nanosecond God hates his son. No, the, no, the Trinity is always working together to accomplish our salvation. And it, he, he's doing it through a just Love, a costly, full, you know, giving full uh, accord to justice in, his, in love. Okay, finally, I want to, I know the modern response to a lot of what I've said this morning is, if you talk to somebody on the college campus, or if you just talk to somebody at the water cooler in your office, you'll hear things like this. You'll hear people say, I don't want to believe in a God who would judge other people. <laughs> I mean, that's the God of tolerance, right? right? You know, I don't, I don't want to believe in a God who, you know, dot, 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 does all the blood and gore. Um, if, if that's you, if that's what you think, what you're really saying is you don't want to believe in a God who is spotless and pure and holy and, and righteous. You don't want to believe in a God who like challenges 21st century American sensibilities. Like you want to believe in a God who looks like um, the president of the university. <laughs> but you don't want to believe in it. You don't want to believe in a king and a judge and a, and a lawgiver. And you want to believe in a God who's a whole lot like you. So uh, here's an illustration of that. Imagine a friend texts you and says, oh, okay, um, I'm really sad right now. Can we get together? I-, I need to talk about a few things. And you guys get together for coffee this, this week. Well, what's wrong? What's, what's going on? Oh, uh, 
I, I'm going to be, I just realized, I'm going I'm to be single for the rest of my life because there's no soulmate out there for me. You know, I've been dating all of these years and there's, there's nobody, I, I haven't been able to find anybody who's the, who's the right guy. All right, well, tell me more. Tell, what, are, what are you looking for in, in another guy? Oh, well, I, I want to meet someone who likes the same things that I do who's available whenever I'm available, somebody who's kind of low maintenance, someone who praises me and never criticizes me, treats me the way that I should be treated, and I'm never going to find that guy. What do you say to your friend? You you said, no, you're right. (laughs) But he's at the Humane Society. (laughs) Get a Cocker Spaniel. (laughs) No, you're not looking for, you're not looking for a guy. You're, you're looking for something else. And when people say, "I can't believe in a God who dot 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 dot," what, it, what I really think you're saying is, you, you're not looking for God. You're looking at, you're looking for an inflatable, you know, version of yourself and your own sensibilities, and and that is simply not uh, the God that's presented in the Bible. Finally, I want to go back to the guy I mentioned at the beginning of the service, Bernard Howard, the, the Jewish believer. Um, and he asked this question. It's a good question. Why is it that if you have such a clear picture of Jesus in Isaiah 53 in the Jewish Bible, why is it that more Jewish people don't actually believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Christians often ask me, why so few Jews believe? Like it's only... Like one in 500 Jews in Israel believe in Jesus. And he says uh, three answers. I mean, I guess the big answer is that it, it ultimately lies in the unsearchable purposes of our sovereign God. But three human answers. Number one, because of the sad per- history of persecution, Christians persecuting Jews, which cannot be denied. Number two, Because there's this widespread feeling among Jewish people that you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. He tells a story about when he went to see his grandmother in, uh, I think it was his grandparents in Israel. And he told them, I'm a Messianic Jew. And they had no category for that. They thought he was a Jehovah's Witness because they had absolutely no, they had never met a Messianic Jew before. He said, number three, the, the third reason, maybe the biggest reason, why so few Jewish people believe is because so few have heard. So few have read. So few have ever had it read to them. And that's not just Jewish people, right? That's tons of secular people. I mean, you and I know that the majority of Secular non-Christian people in the world today have a tremendously caricatured, caricatured view of Christianity and Jesus. They're not, they, don't, they have not heard a compelling and beautiful explanation of the gospel and of, uh, of the cross. They don't believe in part because they don't hear. So why not read it to them? Like, I got to believe that there, I think that there is just power and busting open your Bible to Isaiah 53 and just read. You don't even have to read it with the comments that I gave. Although, you know, the connections between 
53 and Jesus' life are so obvious, you would be able to make those connections for them. What about reading? Um, let the Spirit do His work with the, with the Word. If you just read, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. If you just read that, don't you think that some people might hear? Yeah, may God make it so. Amen. <laughs>